Starting last Sunday, we were taking a couple weeks to talk about what we refer to as the ordinances of the church. Last week, we said that an ordinance is a Christian rite that's associated with tangible elements like water and bread and wine. The term is, or in our case, juice. And the term is closely associated with the, with the word sacrament and is an outward <clears throat> invisible sign of an inward condition or disposition. Broadly speaking, Christianity encompasses three major branches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. In all churches affiliated with those traditions, two common observances stand out, and they are baptism and communion. So you may have spent time in churches where communion is referred to as the Eucharist or as the Lord's Supper. That's kind of the whole spectrum. But what seems, here's the thing, what seems to unite these three faith traditions actually has led to a fair amount of division among the ter- around the terminology and the number and the nature of these rites. So we took some time last week to kind of differentiate between a couple commonly used terms that are often used interchangeably, but they really don't carry the same meaning, and they are the words sacrament and ordinance. A sacrament in the Greek refers to matters that God once hid but is now revealed through the gospel. The name ordinance became associated with the practices of baptism and communion as a result of the Protestant Reformation. Um, And and because the word sacrament kind of carried too many connotations associated with Catholic theology, Protestantism dropped that word and adopted the word ordinance. So Protestants, like many of us, began to use that word, uh, signifying that these practices were ordained or instituted by Jesus himself. The biggest difference in beliefs around sacraments and ordinances is that sacraments are believed to infuse grace by their administration, so into the people of God. So in other words, God's grace is somehow transmitted through the sacraments as they are administered. So if that's true, in order to be a recipient of God's grace and subsequently his salvation, we have to be participants in the sacraments. So I kind of have an issue with that. Ordinances, though, are symbolic. They symbolize the faith and obedience of the follower of Jesus. They aren't seen as transmitting grace, but rather as symbols of grace that has already been received and experienced, and and they are opportunities for us to express our allegiance to Jesus as we practice them. So the adoption of sacraments and ordinances uh, into the life of the church, like implementing these various practices and traditions, was meant to reinforce our connection to our ancient faith. Uh, to experience in the physical what is true in the spiritual. Today, the Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Mainline Protestant churches have two ordinances, and that's where we land. Uh, And you're like, we're mainline? Like, if we want to be, sure, why not? Among the various branches of the Christian church, there are a number of ordinances that kind of vary from one denomination tradition to another. Uh, But where the various traditions overlap, there are two commonly practiced ordinances, and they are baptism and communion. So last week we talked about that, and then we talked about baptism. And so if you missed that and you're interested in knowing about baptism and what we believe about baptism and how we practice baptism, and maybe you're interested in pursuing more about that or being baptized, I encourage you to go back and and watch that message online or or catch it on our podcast. Today I want to talk about communion before we actually observe communion together. And we aren't going to really waste any time today talking about methodology, like how we observe communion, because that isn't prescribed in Scripture, and so we just don't believe, like, it's not, it's not a deal breaker. Uh, like, we can use wine or juice. We can use white bread or unleavened bread. We can 
practice it every Sunday, or we can practice it whenever we put it on the calendar. Uh, We can serve it to you in your seat, or you can come to the front and serve yourself. We can take communion in our small group settings, or we can take it here when we're all gathered together. all, All of that is up to the local congregation. What I want to talk about today is what we're observing, what we're celebrating when we take part in communion, uh, which we'll do together in a few moments. So let's jump into this story. There's a story in John chapter 12. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And Passover is a big deal because a Passover is an annual celebration where Jewish people would get together and celebrate that God had delivered their ancestors from Egypt and from Egyptian slavery. But by Jesus' time, it was kind of a little bittersweet because in the first century, Israel was an occupied territory. Uh, Israel was occupied by Rome. So while the Jewish people took time every year to celebrate God's liberating activity in the past, it didn't seem like God was going to answer their prayers in the present, right? But in spite of that, Passover remained a big deal and Jerusalem was the place to be. So we get the picture. Thousands and thousands of people are pouring into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a large city even then, but every road is packed. Everybody's moving in the same direction, which is uh, essentially the same destination, right? And the city's crowded. And Jesus and his disciples and all of his entourage at this point, the people who just followed him constantly everywhere, have joined this crowd moving in towards the city. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the keepers of the temple, they've heard that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they're thinking, so again, you gotta get, we're kind of jumping into near the end of the story, but they're at this point where they're thinking, this is the opportunity we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for him to come to the city. So the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was in this massive crowd should report it back to them so they could arrest him. And if you wonder, like, why would they want to arrest him? Again, you have to kind of go back and read some of the backstory. But there was a caveat because they were smart. They weren't going to arrest him during the festival because there might be a riot. That's what we read. That's what was their thinking. Because Jesus was extremely popular with the people, which kind of was the issue. Not so popular with the religious leaders, but he was popular among the people. And they're like, he's somewhere in the city. Surely someone will spot him. And when we do, we'll have a couple people tail him. And then once the celebration's over and people start leaving the city, then we'll kind of move in, separate him from the crowd. We'll arrest him, probably have him put in prison. I mean, if we're lucky, we'll have him executed. And then this whole Jesus thing will be behind us when we get back to life as usual. The text says in John 12 that the next day, being about five days from the actual Passover celebration, there are spies on the lookout for Jesus' followers uh, coming into Jerusalem. The text tells us that about five days from Passover, this crowd is starting to arrive for the festival, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And up till now, Jesus had been kind of traveling around in these little villages and towns, and all of a sudden, there's this rumor that he's coming to the city, like he's finally coming to Jerusalem. He's coming into the city. Which gate will he come through? Which direction will he be coming from? What will that look like? There's this buzz everywhere, and the whole city is expecting Jesus, and the reason they're so excited is they're thinking, like, maybe this will be the moment. Like, maybe this will be the Passover when we finally not only celebrate the Israelites being set free from bondage in Egypt centuries ago, but maybe this is the Passover. We celebrate liberty from Roman bondage as well. Maybe Jesus will proclaim himself king this week. That's what they were thinking. So Rome is nervous. Governor Pilate is nervous. The Pharisees are nervous. Everybody's on the lookout for Jesus. They spot him coming. 
and they see him from a distance, and word travels quickly. I think Peter probably tweeted it or something. I don't know. But people line up on both sides of the road, and they took out branches, and they went out to meet him, and they begin to wave these palm branches in the air, and they're shouting, Hosanna, 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 which meant save us now, save us now, save us now. This is a prayer that the Jews prayed to God, to Yahweh, as they knew him. And suddenly they're focusing this prayer on a person. Think about that. And it escalates. Blessed is he who comes in the name or who comes with the authority of Yahweh. And then it turned political. Blessed is the king of Israel. Because they assumed Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for the nation. Why else would he come to Jerusalem? But in fact, Jesus had come to Jerusalem. Listen, listen. To do something for you and for me, and to do something for the entire world. In the next few days, what Jesus would do would be so confusing that his followers wouldn't understand it until it had all been completed. And in the next few days, Jesus would fulfill God's promise to Abraham, and he would replace God's covenant with Israel with a new covenant. Centuries before this event, God promised a man named Abraham that he would become a nation, not simply for the sake of being a nation, but so that through this nation, the entire world, all the way to you and me, would be blessed. And Jesus is about to fulfill that promise. But here's the part I really want us to kind of get into our heads and get get our brains around this, because I think there's been a lack of teaching on this, and I know I haven't taught on it very, like, nearly often enough or clearly enough. And frankly, like, I'm okay. I'm just going to acknowledge I'm okay that there are some things about the Bible and the story of our faith that I don't fully understand. So, but here's the thing. As I come to understand them more clearly, then I think I'm able to teach on them with more understanding and more clarity. So this is kind of where I'm finding myself right now. So in fulfilling God's promise to Abraham and then to Moses and to David, in fulfilling the promise, he would be replacing God's covenant with Israel with something new. And he wasn't simply adding something on. He was bringing something brand new. So for the next few days, Jesus is actually in the temple. And he's laying low. And I'm like, how are you laying low in the temple? So just that tells you how big this crowd was, how chaotic everything was. He knows something's going on with the Jewish leaders. So he's moving around at night. And there's a Jesus sighting here. And there's a Jesus sighting there. And he goes to the temple and he teaches a little bit. But then word starts to spread. So he exits out the back door but before they can arrest him. Then two days out from Passover, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law get a break. If you can believe it, one of Jesus' closest followers breaks rank. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. The text says this in Luke 22. Luke 22 says, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted. (laughs) And they're like, I can't imagine that this would have happened. And they were delighted. The reason they were delighted is because actually they were afraid. Like they were afraid that if Jesus became king and if Jesus declared himself Messiah, that they would lose everything. Like they lose their position, they lose their influence, they lose their power, they lose their whole lifestyle. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where he were delighted, it says, and agreed to give him money. Verse 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. <clears throat> so the stage is set. The kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of this world, this top-down arrangement with their power-oriented arrangement where, where, where like we can handle things, we control things, the kingdoms of this world versus the kingdom of God that Jesus had talked so much about. And while all this is going on, Jesus sends some friends out into the city to find a place where he and his disciples can celebrate the Passover meal together, a place off the beaten path where they wouldn't be interrupted, where no one would be able to find them, where they can have some peace and quiet because Jesus knew that his time with them was drawing to a close. And as they began the Passover meal, something happened that was so disruptive that I'm absolutely convinced that the disciples were never able to put all this together until after the resurrection. But here's what happened. While they're having their Passover meal, while they're eating, Jesus takes the unleavened bread. It's more like a, like a cracker, right? And he takes the bread, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it in half, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says this in Luke 22, verse 19. He says, take, eat. This is my body. This is my body given for you. And I think just before they were ready to take that first bite, they're like, wait, what? What did he just say? Did he say what we think he said? Like, this, wait, this is your body. But he wasn't finished and it got even more confusing. Do this in remembrance of, to which they would have said, you don't have to, we're good Jewish boys, you don't have to tell us what we're doing this in remembrance of. We've been doing this in remembrance of things since we were little kids, like since we were children with our fathers and our grandfathers. We do this in remembrance of God coming to Egypt, taking his people out of Egypt, punishing the Egyptian Pharaoh. We know exactly what we're doing this in remembrance of. And Jesus is like, that's all changing. It's all changing. From now on, when you celebrate this meal, you do this in remembrance of me. Now, to the Gentiles in the room here, I think, I think we're all Gentiles, most of us, and except for those of you maybe I don't know. But So for us Gentiles, let me uh, just explain a little bit of this scenario. At this point, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, everybody should have gotten up and left the room. This should have been the end. I mean, it's like, okay, Jesus, you've contradicted Moses. You've set yourself up and above and like apart from Moses. And like, you can mess with Moses, I guess, because he's dead and what's that all? But anyway, but, you, but you've gotten us all into a lot of trouble with that. And you're not very popular with the religious leaders. So, but you just kind of diss Moses over and over again. But Jesus, you don't mess with Passover. You can't replace Passover. You can't make Passover all about you. So I was trying to figure out how to like illustrate that and bring that into our world. So let me just try this. Imagine this fall I announced to you that we're going to do something different this holiday season. This year, instead of celebrating Christmas like we always have and the birth of Jesus, we're going to shift the holiday season just a little bit earlier and we're going to celebrate my birth. My birthday is on December 1st. Make a note of that. My birthday is on December 1st. You've got to change some travel plans right now, okay, and all that family get together. So t- typically, we celebrate Christmas the Sunday before Christmas. So that'd be November 27th will be the Sunday before my birthday, and we're going to celebrate my birthday together in place of Christmas. We've got some new songs that we've written. They got like bells and stuff in it and this whole like ballads and three, four songs and stuff. It's going to be great. And they're all about me, which is wonderful. And we're going to count down for a few weeks, maybe like create like a special calendar where like every like every day for like 25 days, you can get a little gift, something like that. 
that'll remind you of me, maybe magnetic pictures of me you put on your fridge or whatever. And then we're going to have a Todd's Birthday Eve service, which will be really meaningful, and uh, with candles and ballads and poetry. Then on sun- Sunday morning, we're going to just like, all these people who always, like those, you know those people who come to church twice a year? They're going to be so surprised. Because they're going to come and we're going to gather together and they think they know what it is, but they're coming together. I mean, I'm going to put a big chair out here for me. I got like, I'm going to sit here and people are going to talk about how they're going to sing these songs about me and talk about how great I am. And it's going to be great because it's all about me. They're doing this in my honor. And all of you would leave the church at that point. And you should, okay? If, if I ever do that, you have my permission to leave immediately. Something has gone off the rails, okay? Something bad has happened. Here's my point. The thing Jesus was saying was way worse than that. Because this is like facetious. It's way more disruptive than that. It's like, Jesus, you're great and all. Like, we've given our lives to following you around for three years, and and we'll hang with you for as long as this thing runs. But you can't, like, make Passover about you. And that's the beginning of the meal. So Jesus kind of leaves that hanging, and they eat the bread, and they go back to their meal, and they have some conversations. And I'd love to know what's running through their minds. But then we're told this in verse 20. It says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, and he's like, this cup is, (laughs) to which they are like, stop already. Like, whoa, we, we know what this cup is. This cup represents the blood that was shed by animals the night that our ancestors left Egypt and started off for the freedom of the promised land. And they had to slaughter a spotless lamb and put the blood over the door and on the sides of the door. And when the death angel passed through Egypt, they saw the, these, the death angel saw the blood and kept moving on. And they, were, they all left like under the blood of that lamb. And then they went to Mount Sinai and God established a new nation. Like, we know exactly what this cup represents. So Jesus, if we could, could we please stick with the 1,500-year-old script that we learned as children? Can you see how extraordinarily disruptive this was? He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and here's what he said. This cup is the new covenant. Not a new improved covenant. Not a slightly better covenant. Not a new chapter of a covenant. The new covenant. The cup has always, he said, the cup has always represented a celebration of God's covenant, you know, with the nation. And up until this night, every time you got together to observe Passover, it was a celebration of the fact that God established a brand new relationship with the nation of Israel. But from now on, when you take the cup, you're going to celebrate a brand new covenant that begins tonight. And if they've been paying attention in Sabbath school, these Jewish boys would know that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted the day would come when God would establish a new covenant that would replace the current covenant. 650 years before this moment with Jesus and the disciples, the prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He said, the days are coming. So pay attention. Get ready. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The covenant that God established with Moses, when Moses came down from Sinai with the commandments and all the rituals and the rules and 
all the hoops and stipulations and all the I will and you have to and if you don't, I won't. He says, it's not going to be like that one. There's going to be a replacement covenant. And the question Jeremiah's listeners should have asked if they'd really been paying attention was like, well, if you're establishing a new covenant, it isn't going to be like the old one. How will it be different? And the prophet, Jeremiah, 650 years earlier, kind of answered that question before they even asked it. He said, here's the difference between the two covenants. If we keep reading, he says, I will put my law, the law that was written on stone, the law that Moses brought down from the mountain. He's like, that, that's the old covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. I'm going to put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. They won't have to memorize the laws and all the stipulations of this new covenant. I'm going to be their God, and they'll be my people. Back to Passover in this upper room. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant, the one that was promised long ago, the one that you should have been expecting all along. It's about to begin. And the new covenant represents a new kind of relationship because that's what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. This new covenant would represent a new kind of relationship, not between God and nation, but between God and individual people. And the question they should have asked if they'd been paying attention, the one they should have wrestled to the ground, should have, that one that should have disturbed them into like if they'd been thinking straight, would be okay, but what kind of covenant is it? You gotta tell us. Would it be like the old one with all these rules and conditions and punishments and blessings? Like we can't keep up with most of that. Or is this new covenant gonna be more like the one with our father Abraham that was more of a, an unconditional covenant? Because God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. You can work with me or you can work against me, but Abraham, when all is said and done, you are going to be a great nation and I'm going to bless the world through you. It's like I'm making a promise and I hope you'll work with me, but in the end, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Wait for it, wait, wait, wait. And here's the point of the covenant, that through that great nation, I am going to bless the world. So this new covenant then, what kind of covenant would it be? Let's hit pause on Jesus and the disciples. And I want to talk a little bit about ancient covenants because it's about to get dry here for a few minutes. So we're going we're gonna to come back to the story so we can understand the significance of what's happening in the room that night. There's, there were essentially three kinds of covenants that dominated the ancient landscape. The first kind of covenant is what is called a bilateral parity agreement. How many of you are familiar with bilateral parity agreements? Okay, great. I wasn't either. There's not going to be a test, but you should pay attention. Bilateral parity agreement. This is a covenant or an agreement between two equals. You're like, oh, that I can identify with, right? We've all entered into those kinds of agreements. It's an I will if you will. If you will, then I will. If you don't, I'm not going to. And if I don't do what you expect me to do, then you you don't have to do what I think you should do. Think business contract, okay? Two groups meet together. They're equals. They come up with a contract that they both sign or they both, you know, agree with or they share blood or kiss or hug or sometimes, sometimes they trade daughters, you know, that's a thing. And there's all kinds, all kinds of weird stuff around covenants, okay, that symbolize entering into a covenant. So this is the thing, too, I also just want you to kind of understand that there are parts of Scripture that are not instructive so much as they are descriptive. So just because there's things in the Bible like that's the way they did it, that's the way we need to do it now, no. No, 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 because again, the trading of daughters, you get my daughter, I get your goats. I'm not saying that's a thing we should adopt. So this is, this is, this is between two equals. So, so there's the bilateral parity agreement, and then there was the suzerain-vassal treaty. 
So a, a suzerain vassal treaty. You're like making this up. No, I'm not. You can fact check me. There was this, uh, a suzerain is like a king or a leader or a powerful person, right? A person of authority. And the way this works is that the suzerain or the king would dictate terms and conditions to a lesser power, a vassal, who didn't have much choice in the matter. So here's why this is important to know. God's relationship with the nation of Israel was a suzerain vassal treaty. It's not an agreement between equals. God said to the nation, here are the rules, and he dictated all the terms. And if you'd like to read them, if you're into that, they're outlined at the end of the book of Genesis, all of Leviticus, and most of Deuteronomy. So there's some light reading there for you. It's parts of the Bible that you will struggle to stay awake reading through them. And if you are a question asker, you're going to have a ton of questions. They're really important. But listen, listen. They're not for us. And you're like, whew, aren't you glad? If you've read that part of the Bible, you're like, wow, excellent. Because we're not a part of ancient Israel. We're not a part of the Mosaic Covenant. That's why when you read them, you're like, well, who in the world could do all this stuff? It's so complicated. But listen, God, this is so important, God is founding a nation. He was founding a civilization that was going to be unlike any other society. He's founding this people that had to have rules and laws for the purpose, listen, of bringing the promised Messiah. So he's establishing a brand new society with this big end game in mind. So he established an I will if you will covenant, which also included by default, if you don't, I won't. So here's how it went. God said to the nation, you can read it for yourself. He said it to the nation through Moses and Aaron. Uh, He said, obey me. Don't worship any other gods. Keep my rules. I'll keep you safe. Your crops will grow. I'll make sure you're victorious in war. If you don't keep my rules, if you worship other gods, I'm not going to protect you. Your crops aren't probably going to grow, and I'm not going to be for you anymore. And Israel's entire ancient history is a cycle of faithful to God, unfaithful to God, faithful to God, unfaithful to God. And at one point, God puts the whole nation in a timeout. Like, this is where timeout started. They, they, they abandoned God. Oh, you're still with me. Thank you. They abandoned God, and they worshiped idols, and God says, okay, I've warned you. Like, we have an agreement. You broke your end of the agreement. So he takes all the leaders of the nation of Israel, puts them in Babylon for a 70-year timeout. And then when they learned their lesson, he allowed them to gradually come back into the land. So this is a suzerain vassal treaty. I'm the king, you're the subjects. Here are my demands. If you don't obey me, you'll be punished. If you do, you'll be blessed. There's a third type of treaty that was common in ancient times, and it's called a promissory covenant. In this particular covenant, and this is so important, one party, one party binds itself to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. One party binds itself to an obligation. It makes a promise to the other party that's for the benefit of the other party. Not a bilateral. It's not an I will, if you will. It's unilateral, and it's unconditional. So that brings us to a really important part of understanding ancient covenants. In ancient covenants, they are pretty much all ratified the same way. Something had to die in all of them. And what generally they would do is they'd take an animal, depending on how wealthy the parties were, sometimes multiple animals, they would, literally, they would slaughter the animals, and then they would literally split the carcass right down the middle, and they would lay them open, and each of the parties that were making the covenant together would literally walk through the halves of the dead animal. And when we talk today about making deals, we use this language where we're, we're going to cut a deal. That's where it comes from. It came from this ancient idea of cutting a covenant. And as they walk through these dead animal parts together... 
Here's, I know it's a beautiful image, and here's, here's what they were essentially saying to each, like I'm all in favor of like a barbecue pork buffet, but let's, this is not what we're talking about. Both parties were saying, thus may it be, look around, thus may it be to me as it is to this unfortunate innocent animal if I violate the terms of this covenant. Now, I've officiated around 25 weddings. Some are more interesting than others. Some are more memorable than others, especially when there's an element that I've never seen before. And I was at a wedding yesterday, and within eight minutes, I'd seen three elements I'd never seen before, especially the slaughtering of the animal thing. I'd never actually seen that. No, that's not true. That's not true. I was at a wedding yesterday, and I did see three new things in the first eight minutes I'd never seen before, so I just tucked that away. Um, I'm out of the business, by the way, but, um, so don't get any ideas. But here's the thing. Like, if, you, if you want people, like if you have a wedding in your future, and you want people to remember your wedding ceremony, you want wedding photos that will go viral. Walk down the aisle between the halves of a pig. I mean, if you're going to have barbecue pulled pork anyway, you don't think it's funny? I think it'd be awesome. But <laughs> did somebody say he's so weird? Did somebody just say that? These ancient covenants were blood covenants between both parties. So back to the three covenants. In the promissory covenant, only one person is making a promise. So when a person made a promissory covenant, listen, this is so, the the imagery, they would slaughter an animal, cut it in half, but instead of both parties walking through the two halves of the carcass, only one person would walk through. Why? Because only one party in the covenant was making a promise. It's all on them. So here's a fascinating thing. When God appeared to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 15, and Genesis is such an interesting book, and he says this in, in Genesis 15, it says this, God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the entire world through that nation for the rest of time. Like that. And then they ratified this agreement with the sacrifice of some animals because Abraham was a wealthy man and God had access to all the animals. And you can read about this in Genesis 15. They slaughtered several animals, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other so there's space in between. And Genesis 15 verse 17 says this, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, I think just for effect, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abraham did not pass between the pieces. Only this flaming representation of God because this covenant was all on God. Let's jump way forward. The question on that night at Passover with Jesus and his disciples. God's establishing a new covenant. It's a new covenant with the whole world. But what kind of covenant is it, Jesus? And he answers that in a way that... I just love the way that he explains the new covenant in this context. Here's what he says. Back to Jesus and his guys in the upper room. Luke 22, verse 20. This cup is the new covenant. And the next statement clarifies what kind of covenant it's going to be. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will play the role, Jesus is saying, I'm going to play the role of the animal that is sacrificed to inaugurate, to launch, to seal this new covenant. To which if they were thinking straight, they were like, okay, that's your part. doesn't make sense, but that's your part. What's our part? Which is poured out for you. You are on the receiving side. I've come to establish the covenant. I'm on the giving side. You are on the receiving side. Or to say it another way, it's for you, and it's on 
me. It's 100% for you, and it's 100% on me. Matthew's account adds a couple words in Matthew 26. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus, like, so, so wait, so you're establishing the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied. You're establishing the new covenant? In this covenant, Jesus, you are representing God's interest in establishing the covenant? And so like what you're saying is from now on when we gather, we're no longer going to celebrate God delivering our people from Egypt. From now on, we're going to celebrate the establishment of this new covenant. All good so far. The blood part's throwing us off a little bit because like how do you mean like the covenant, covenant is going to be in your blood? Because like, first of all, you're the most popular person in the city. Look around. People are waiting for you to step out during Passover, proclaim yourself king. So what do you mean you're going to ratify this covenant in your blood for the forgiveness of sins? Like that part, like blood for the forgiveness of sins. We've seen, like we've experienced temple worship. Like, that's what we've known our whole life. We go to temple. We take an animal. We sacrifice an animal. We get forgiveness of sins for now. And now you're saying that you are the sacrifice for that results in forgiveness of sins. Like, so, like, if you're, like, Jesus, if you're being literal, like, for once, like, you can only spill your blood once. So how does this work? They should have seen this coming. Because on the day... When Jesus stepped onto the pages of history to launch his ministry, John the baptizer, looking to this very moment, three years or so earlier, said to a crowd gathered on the banks of the Jordan River, he's like, look, look right here, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who's single-handedly all by himself, taking it all on himself, he's come to take away the sin of the entire world. The day after the meal with the disciples, this new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sin would be officially ratified on a Roman cross. It seemed like the empire that best represented kingdoms of this world was victorious. It seemed like it for a moment. But God was up to something bigger. Jesus called it the new covenant. The new covenant, a new agreement between God And this entire image-bearing rebel race, a new covenant for every nation and every generation, and this is the big one, this is the final one, this is the one that would finally fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's arrangement with the nation of Israel. It's it's an unconditional covenant. It's a promissory covenant. It is unilateral, one-sided, unlimited covenant. Would there be terms and conditions like God's relationship with Moses and the people of Israel? Would there be terms and conditions? Well, yeah, but Jesus kind of stripped it all down and simplified it so much, so much, and they'd be nothing like the terms and conditions, like the laws and the ceremony. Excuse me, the ceremonies and the stipulations that God rolled out for the nation of Israel when He established that covenant in Mount Sinai. In fact, I think if we were to say to John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if we were to say to John. John, this is really too good to be true. Like, you were there. This is too good to be true. It's so good, I hope it's true, that God provided a way for a relationship with me through Jesus. And then he did the whole thing that was really for me and on him. So, so John, like, what do I do with this? Like, what's my part? How do I get in on this new relationship offered through the new covenant? And I think John would say, the best words I know are these, that whoever says yes, that whoever believes it's for them, you won't be left out of the covenant. You'll have eternal new covenant life. And who wouldn't want to say yes to that? If we were to say to Peter, Peter, this is too good to be true. I mean, 
how do I get in on this, Peter? I think Peter would have an even simpler answer than John. I think Peter would take us back to that one day when he met Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter's like, you don't know anything about fishing. Like, we've been fishing, okay? You're a carpenter, and that's fine for you, but we're fishermen. But they went fishing, and they caught so many fish, they didn't know what to do, and Peter falls at Jesus' feet, and he recognizes, okay, I don't know what your deal is or who you are exactly, but you are in a different category than me. Like, I'm not worthy to be on the same boat as you. And Peter looks up at Jesus, and Jesus smiles, and and he says to Peter, you may not know anything about me, but I know all about you. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to follow me. And that's the invitation to the new covenant. It's simply follow me. It's follow me with this understanding that I know all about you. I know what you've done. I know what you haven't done. I know what you promised to do. I know you can't even keep your own rules. I know you've broken most of mine. But all of that is taken care of under my unlimited, unconditional covenant that established in my blood for you. It's on me, but it's for you. It's on me, Jesus says, but it's for you. So in light of that, just come follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts full of gratitude. Grateful that you've invited us to be part of this new covenant, a covenant that's all on you, a covenant that was sealed with the blood of Jesus, a covenant that is unconditional, a new agreement between God creator and the entire image-bearing human race, a new covenant that was for every person and every generation and every nation, a covenant that we couldn't possibly begin to live up to so we don't have to, and it's all on Jesus, and it's a covenant that is all for us. And it does seem too good to be true. That's the nature of your grace. But we know that it's true because we've been recipients of your unlimited, unconditional grace. This morning, may we remember the words of the Apostle Paul that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. May every person in this room and watching online, everyone know that the freedom that comes from living in the grace that you offer is what this new covenant is all about. As we pause in a few minutes to observe the sacred ordinance of communion, may we truly come together as a small part of the body of Christ, the church, to remember the price that was paid for our redemption, for our restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. And may we partake of the bread and the cups, perhaps more mindful than ever before of the new covenant that it represents, that this new covenant, it's all on you, and it's for us. For all of this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name.